Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler, and I am the special temporary primary host. And that is a temporary position, but the primary is really the operative term there. That's the key word. Uh, if you were to construct hypothetically like uh, a podium of all the different hosts of the Stronger by Science podcast, without question, I'd be in the number one spot in the front and center, uh, kind of towering over all others. But Today, I am joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the show, at least for the time being. So, Greg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Uh, and and just to add to that analogy, uh, all of the uh, guest co-hosts and all of the other laborers who make this podcast possible, we would be the foundation upon which the podium rests uh, for two reasons. One, the primary host as the dirty bourgeois capitalist in this situation uh, walks... Which I take as a compliment, by the way. Which you shouldn't. uh, Walks all over the labor that that makes all of this possible. But we are also the foundation that allows anything else to exist. Without us, the podium itself would just be falling and spiraling down into an endless void. Cool. Sounds good. Um, All right, so... (laughs) If you enjoy the show and you would like to support it, there are many ways to do it. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you access podcasts. You could go to bulksupplements.com and use our discount code, that is SBSPOD, and it gets you a 5% discount off your entire order. Of course, you could also subscribe to the Mass Research Review, or you could subscribe to Macrofactor, which is our diet app, which does offer a free trial. Uh, Greg road to the stage how are things going uh things are going pretty well um so march ended up being an unintentional diet break month um i was on vacation for a week and otherwise sticking to my numbers pretty good and body just decided not gonna lose weight uh but it more recently decided yeah let's start let's start losing weight again uh so yeah, hit a new all-time, well, not all-time, I, I was a baby once, uh, hit a new, within the past decade, low of 2.30 on the dot this morning, uh, and I am going to call my shot probably by the time this episode actually goes out. We're, we're recording this on Monday. It'll go out on Thursday. I think I'll probably have a day somewhere in the 220s by then. If not, definitely by the time we record next week, I'm going to... Uh, uh, break through that barrier, which until this point, many people believe to be humanly impossible. Uh, And yeah, uh, things are going well, very close to the 220s. Very stoked about that. Awesome. That's fantastic. Um, We will see if you successfully call your shot or not. I'm excited to see that. Uh, I don't have any updates for the road to Athens. Uh, My body continues to betray me on a regular basis, but I'm excited. Pretty soon, um, since the weather's heating up, I'll be able to do more cross-training, a little bit more swimming, a little bit more paddleboarding. Uh, I'm really excited about that. So I'll probably have more updates uh, in the coming weeks. Cool. Um, all right. Before we, So we have a lot to cover today. We've got quite a few uh, listener questions that we would like to answer and discuss. But before we do that, I understand you've got a research review, and this is a very timely research review. Uh, so it is 
early to mid-April in North Carolina. A beautiful place to be, a lot of lovely trees, lovely flowers. But around this time of year, it is very dangerous to go outside uh, for someone like me. The the allergy season is in full swing. Uh, so, Greg, what, what do you have for us? Uh, yeah, so I, I will neither confirm nor deny that I also struggle with allergies. Uh, that would be a HIPAA violation. Uh, but theoretically, maybe I do. Um, and what I'm about to talk about is something that in an ideal world, I would remember at the start of every allergy season, and I always forget until about a month into allergy season. <laughs> um, but yes, I think for the first time on the podcast, this is a dedicated Greg uh, supplement section that comes with a recommendation. Um, I've talked about supplements before. Generally, it's in the context of a segment that you initiate since you're the supplement guy, Uh but when it comes when it comes to stuffy noses, I I am your guy. I maybe struggle with that more than uh, most people alive. So it's it's something that's very near and dear, uh, both to my heart and my sinus passages. Well, and, and by definition, if anyone struggled more than you with this, they would not be alive. <laughs> I mean, that is kind of true. Like I I've I've had to be hospitalized for like allergic reactions and. You know, not not like uh, I have a peanut allergy and I need an EpiPen, but just like when I was a kid, before I got allergy shots, um, occasionally the pollen would just be so bad that all my shit would swell up and I couldn't breathe and I need to go to the hospital. I shouldn't be uh, laughing. I no, I mean, uh, yeah, no, I... I sh should not have survived childhood. Honestly, it is an abomination of modern medicine that I'm still here today. Like, no, I I had to go to the hospital for fucking seasonal allergies related <laughs> to pollen. Had to go to the, I was hospitalized for um uh like poison ivy infections. So, when I get poison ivy, we're already off the rails. But when I get poison <laughs> ivy, man, um, and again, not as bad anymore since I've had allergy shots, but when I was a kid, I would get like a little patch of poison ivy on my body and I don't fully understand how this works, but it would, it would just go systemic and I'd wake up the next day and like 25% of my flesh would just be covered with poison ivy. And then I'm basically just crossing my fingers and hoping and praying that it wouldn't make it into my, uh, like my my trachea the next day, uh, and sometimes it would. I'd wake up, throat would be somewhere between itchy and painful, very a lot of difficulty breathing. I didn't know that like glandular tissue, could, and who knows? Maybe it wasn't actually poison ivy bumps on my shit. Maybe it was just like so much generalized inf uh, inflammation from all of the poison ivy on my body. But yeah, just wake up unable to breathe. Um, so yeah allergies not not my friend so uh yeah let's talk about uh allergies a little bit so we're talking about we looked up the pronunciation before this started spirulina Lina. right yeah. yeah spirulina um i i'm so bad about that because i don't i don't talk about fitnessy or supplement related things outside of the podcast for the most part because yeah. like i mean when you're over here working we do but Otherwise, like, I'm hanging out with Lindsay. She doesn't want to talk about that stuff. So there are so many words that I read, but then I realize I've never said. And yeah. then it's podcast time, and I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, anyway, spirulina. 
Um, it's it's cool stuff. It's a a blue green algae that can be um, basically just like dried out. You can take it in tablet or pill form. Um, and there is some evidence that it is pretty effective for cutting down on allergic rhinitis symptoms. Rhinitis just means inflammation of the nose and nasal passages. Rhine, like rhino, either the Greek or Latin word for nose. I think Greek. I don't know. doesn't matter. And itis, that's the, the suffix for inflammation. So inflammation of the nose. Um, so <laughs> there have been two studies looking at the impact of spirulina supplementation on allergic rhinitis symptoms. Uh, and I was going to talk about those two studies individually, uh, but then I came across a, a pre-printed systematic review by Batista and colleagues uh, called Efficacy of Spirulina for Allergic Rhinitis. Um, and so I'm just going to put that in the show notes instead as my reference. One, because it talks about, like, it, it reviews both of the studies that have looked at this. Uh, and two, I found it <laughs> I found it very cute because it was a systematic review of two papers, and I've never seen a systematic review of that few studies before. And to be clear, it's a preprint. Who knows if it'll make it through peer review. Uh, if it doesn't, it will probably get rejected because it's a systematic review of two papers. But in terms of how it was conducted... Uh, you know, it, it followed the Cochrane recommendations. Its actual discussion of the two primary studies was solid. So, like, the information is good. I just found it funny that that it's a systematic review of two studies. Now, th did they do a quantitative meta-analysis with it? They didn't because the, the two studies looked at um, slightly different endpoints. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe they didn't plan on doing a meta-analysis in the first place. A meta of two studies would be even funnier. Yeah. But, yeah, because um, I'm thinking, you know, maybe you cut them some slack because they're like, hey, let's do a systematic review. Maybe they were anticipating that there would be a a, a more, um, you know, a larger body of literature. And then they, they do their systematic search and they say, oh, we only caught two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the two papers, one is by uh, Sinji and colleagues from 2005, and one is more recent by Nulian and colleagues from 2020. Uh, and in both of these studies, they used two grams of spirulina per day as the treatment dose. Uh, the, the earlier study compared it against placebo, and the more recent study uh, compared it against uh, cetirizine, which is the generic name for the brand, the brand name drug Zyrtec. Um, and in, in both of these studies, like they, they looked at a variety of different endpoints, um, <laughs> which is like... Most of them were, were self-report, so it's like, hey, how runny is your nose? How itchy is your nose? Is it more or less runny or itchy than before? Um, and and across those kind of self-reported measures, um, spirulina worked pretty well, both with in-group, led to reductions in those nasal allergy symptoms over time. Um, in the earlier study that compared it against placebo, pretty much washed a placebo treatment in in virtually everything, which is what you like to see. And in the more recent study that compared it against uh, cetirizine, it did about as well as cetirizine for a variety of symptoms and actually performed better than cetirizine for a few other symptoms, which, uh, which is pretty cool from an herbal supplement. Um, but yeah, overall, seems like spirulina works pretty well. 
In terms of how it works, um, it, it seems to reduce the cytokine response to um, things that would tend to cause allergic symptoms. And that is probably downstream of spirulina blocking histamine release from mast cells. So, um, you know what? I was, I was going to talk through the biochemical pathways of allergic reactions. Bunch of big words. No one's going to remember it anyway. Who cares? Basically, a lot of stuff happens, but one of the first thing that one of the first things that happens is um, like when an allergic response is triggered is histamine is released from mast cells. That histamine binds to histamine receptors, and then a bunch of stuff happens downstream of that, including a general inflammatory response, uh, part of which is cytokine release, and then you know. You get inflamed, you start producing snot. Uh, the histamine itself sensitizes nerve cells, which is why things feel itchy, like um, a, a, a stimulus that otherwise you wouldn't even register, you wouldn't even feel, is kind of elevated to the point that you do sense it, but you only sense it a little bit, so it's a tickle. Um, so yeah, all of that stuff happens downstream of histamine release, and it seems that spirulina uh, blocks histamine release. And that's a very cool and useful mechanism of action because that means, at least theoretically, it should work synergistically with like antihistamine medications. So I am currently taking both spirulina and loratadine, which is that is that Allegra? I don't know. Whatever. I just buy the it might be Claritin. Claritin. Who cares? I I just buy the generics. Um, but yeah, so I I take loratadine every allergy season. Um, and yeah, the way that uh, antihistamines tend to work, antihistamine medication, is they don't block histamine release. What they do is uh, something called competitive inhibition of the histamine receptor. So if you haven't taken biology classes, or if you haven't taken biology in a while, uh, what competitive inhibition is, is basically you have a molecule that binds to the same receptor as some other target molecule. Um, so that's the competitive part. The inhibition part is when it binds to that receptor, it doesn't have an effect. So uh, basically you have histamine receptors all over the place. When histamine binds to those receptors, that kind of causes an inflammatory response downstream to that binding. So antihistamines go in, they bind to those same receptors, don't let histamine latch onto those receptors. But when the antihistamines bind to the histamine receptor, it doesn't cause the same downstream inflammatory response that histamines would. Um, so if spirulina actually blocks some degree of histamine release, um, that shouldn't have any impact on the efficacy of antihistamine medications. So they, they work via different mechanisms of action. So theoretically, they should have synergistic effects instead of competitive effects or effects that might cancel each other out. In theory, since they work via different mechanisms of action, if you take both, maybe it would be more effective than just taking one or the other. And in fact, that is what I do. Um, and as I mentioned, this is something that I wished I remembered at the start of every allergy season. Because if, if you remember maybe like three or four episodes ago, I was fucking dying, man. Um, <laughs> like my my allergy symptoms were, were rough. And at that point, I was already taking... Uh, more loratadine than it is probably advisable for humans to take on a daily basis. And I was in better shape than I would have been had I not been taking the loratadine, but like I was still in pretty bad shape. And at this point, 
allergy season is much worse than it was then. Like, you walk outside now and everything, like, it, it Raleigh looks like a Hollywood movie uh, shooting in a location that's supposed to be Mexico. You know how, like, uh, in movies when there's a scene in Mexico, they just make everything yellow. Like, they give it a yellowy-orange hue. So, like, dude, outside looks like that right now. There, there's just a yellow blanket of pollen on everything. Um, and, like, I'm still a little sniffly, but overall I'm doing fine. Uh and that is because about two weeks ago, I remembered <laughs> to start taking spirulina again. Um, and also, uh, a shout out to Curtis Frank, who I, I actually don't know what Curtis is up to these days, but uh, one of the founding members of examine.com, uh, he recommended spirulina to me back in the day. Uh, and I thought it seemed kind of silly. As a man who has dealt with tremendous allergy issues my entire life, including like when I started getting allergy shots, the first kind of round of it, like if you've ever gone through allergy shots, you know this, if not, uh, the way it works is basically, um, you know, it works kind of like a vaccine. Like they introduce like little bits of allergen into your system. So you have some amount of response to it, but basically like your immune system gets used to the allergen over time. So it doesn't mount as large of a response as it otherwise would. And the more allergic you are to things, the smaller dose they have to start with, but the more frequent the shots uh, uh, need to be to begin with. Um, and so I think generally they start people off with like either one or three shots per week. When I started getting allergy shots, I had to go in literally every weekday to, to get like just a, a, a little jab of allergen to, to start the process of, of the allergy shots. Um, so yeah, I, I've had a lot of medical treatment for allergies. And as I mentioned, like when, when I'm entering the antihistamine game, I'm entering it in a big way. Uh, like the, the 10 milligram pills where you're supposed to take one, don't, don't take dosing advice for antihistamines from me, but I take like four or five a day. Um, like generally three in the morning, two at night. And that's just like the baseline I need to function even after allergy shots. So when Curtis was just like, ah, like spirulina seems to be pretty good for allergic rhinitis, I was like, eh, that seems like bullshit to me. If if all of this like legit medicine, which which to be clear does help me a lot, like if all of that has gotten me to the point that I can just barely function during allergy season, there's no way that taking like an algae supplement is really gonna move the needle that much. But lo and behold, that motherfucker was right. Uh I started taking spirulina and it did have like a pretty marked impact for me, just kind of N equals one, uh, again, in conjunction with, with other antihistamines. Um, and so, yeah, like I would, I would love to see more research on spirulina. Like it, it is kind of shocking or not shocking, but striking that, you know, tons of people have seasonal allergy symptoms. There are two studies that seem to show that spirulina works really, really well for addressing that. Um, that just that just seems like something that I would think other researchers would look at and be like, oh, like this is a really cool thing. Doesn't seem like studies that would be all that hard to do. Like basically you, you recruit some people, <laughs> you give some of them pills, you give some of them placebo pills, come back three, three weeks, a month later, whatever, and just say like, yeah, hey, are you less sniffly than before? Maybe do a blood draw to look at cytokine response. Seems like a very useful study and a pretty easy study to do. Um, so I'm kind of surprised there's not more research. I wish there was. 
uh, it would like, I, I feel like I haven't been as reserved in this recommendation as I probably should have been. And part of that is just because my N equals one experience with it is so positive. Um, but yeah, like from a purely objective point of view, some some degree of skepticism is still warranted because again, we're dealing with a very small body of research. Um, it would definitely be good to see more work in this area, but the the mechanism of action makes sense. The research that does exist seems to be pretty positive. Uh, my own experience with it is extremely positive. Um, so yeah, I mean, if if you also deal with really bad nasal allergy symptoms during allergy season. Um, it doesn't seem like there's really any meaningful risk associated with supplementing with spirulina. Um, it, it's cheap. Like, it, it's not going to break the bank to try. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's... Are there any uh, potential drug interactions with uh, common over-the-counter uh, allergy medications? <sighs> I mean, not that I'm aware of, but I'm also not a pharmacist. Yeah. My, um, it, I'm, it might be worth looking into if you're exploring this as an option. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm, I haven't heard anything about it, but, you know, it's kind of a standard caveat. To yeah, I, I mean, ask ask a doctor or pharmacist. If, like, if you're concerned about starting any new supplement, um, ask a doctor or pharmacist, like, hey, I currently take these drugs. I want to try this supplement. Uh, can, can you look it up in... in whatever that resource is that pharmacists have, like, ah, could this be bad? Um, so yeah, that, you know, you, you might want to ask about that, but, um, you know, if, if you want to, if you want to try something else, uh, spirulina seems to be pretty good stuff, pretty cheap, um, might have some, some beneficial effects, uh, separate from allergic rhinitis. Like there, there are a couple studies suggesting that it might, uh, imp lead, lead to slight enhancements in VO2 max following aerobic training compared to placebo. Although I'm not sure what the mechanism of action is for that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, in my opinion, pretty good stuff. Cool. I, I might give that a try. I'm going to look into that after the show. Uh, cause I, I've been struggling a little bit, uh, you know, given the allergy situation around here. Um, but cool. Moving on. We've got, uh, quite a few questions from listeners that we'd like to answer today. Uh, I'm going to kick things off. I've got a question from Nicole. Nicole says that she often sees people, including registered dietitians, claiming that dietary fat is very filling, basically that it has uh, a major impact on satiety and that you should include dietary fat in meals uh, for these satiety benefits. Um, however, Nicole was looking into it she sees a few mechanistic things, but, you know, not a lot of really strong evidence suggesting that fat has a satiety-inducing effect that would actually yield the type of outcomes you might be looking for. A lot of times when you're adding something to a meal to increase satiety, you're hoping that it might reduce your, your caloric intake at that meal or maybe at subsequent meals in the, the hours following. Uh, so basically, Nicole is asking... What's the deal with fat and satiety? Um, and there is a really nice book chapter that's available online. It's like one of those book chapters that is open access and indexed in PubMed. Uh, so I'm going to put a link to that book chapter in the show notes. 
But the book chapter basically tries to address this very same question. Is dietary fat satiating? And I think they do a great job summarizing the research really concisely, but but still giving some good practical takeaways. Um, and, and what they conclude in the uh, the book chapter here, based on the research available, is yes, in, in a controlled environment, in uh, you know more mechanistically oriented studies, you can make a connection between dietary fat and satiety. Um, and the links there are you know having more fat in the meal has certain impacts on satiety-related hormone release. Um, it can uh, delay, it, you know, it can kind of uh, prolong the digestion time of the meal so that it kind of delays that gastric emptying rate. So there are mechanistic reasons to believe that adding some fat to, uh, to a meal could theoretically increase satiety during that meal or, or immediately following that meal. Um, but they dig into the the details within this book chapter, and, and they highlight the fact that certain types of fat are more satiating than others. Um, you know, that that's kind of one of the common things we like to do when we talk about dietary fat is treat it like it's just one thing. Um, and obviously, you can take dietary fat and you can separate that out into saturated or unsaturated, and then you can separate that even further with polyunsaturated versus monounsaturated. But you can dig even deeper and look at the specific fatty acid composition of a particular dietary fat source. So not all saturated fat is exactly the same thing. There are different saturated fatty acids that make up you know, the, the dietary sources of saturated fat that we consume. So uh, there's a lot more to it than just add some fat to the diet and reap the benefits of more satiety. And when you start looking at free living conditions, so people that are out there putting together meals in the real world, uh, things get a lot more complicated. It's not just adding some fat and hoping you chose the right type of fat. Uh, you know, there are a lot of other factors to consider. And in my opinion, you know, you, you can break it down into differences between individuals you know they, they mention in this chapter that there are, there appear to be a couple of phenotypes where some people are more susceptible to uh, overfeeding when exposed to a high fat diet than others you know there are differing responses to the addition of fat to a diet some people um, you know are, are much more susceptible to fat gain on a high fat diet than others so there's those inter-individual differences um, where there are genetic components behavioral components psychological components uh, but I think probably the biggest thing to consider if you're trying to use the addition of fat as a strategy to promote satiety is now we have to consider the palatability of a meal and a lot of times, you know, when, when people demonize high fat foods, a lot of times if you ask them, well, what do you mean by a high fat food? What they're really talking about are calorically dense foods that tend to be highly, highly palatable. These are foods that are very enjoyable to eat and they evoke uh, quite a pronounced re reward response when it comes to kind of the hedonic regulation of food intake. So it's not, we're not just talking about dietary fat. We're talking about something like ice cream, right? Where there's plenty of fat. There's also plenty of carbohydrate. Uh, 
the the texture is great, the mouthfeel is great, the flavor is great. So it's not just, hey, what happens when you put fat in the diet? It's what happens when you introduce palatable foods that contain fat into the diet. And so a lot of times, you know, you, you can talk all you want about physiological satiety and different satiety-related hormones and digest, digestion rates and rates of gastric emptying, that stuff is all fine in a laboratory setting. But if the actual application of this, you know, if someone's seeking out more fat and they're gravitating toward these really enjoyable, highly palatable foods that might provoke some overconsumption, then you have not just lost the potential benefit of higher satiety, but you've probably actually gone the other direction and, and introduced even more caloric intake into the equation um, just because the, the hedonic system regulating food intake is so susceptible to these palatable kind of rewarding foods that when we eat them, they make us feel great. So I think, you know, I personally, w w when someone says, hey, should I in eat more fat to have more satiety? My gut, like my first response is probably not because, um, I, I don't think we would see at the population level if the guidance out there was, hey, eat more fat, it'll fill you up. I am very, very skeptical that that would, you know, induce a reduction in body weight on a population level. And even at the individual level, you know, the, the idea of increasing fat as a dietary strategy is uh, it's a very vague thing. You know, th there are many different ways to implement that type of advice that would take many different forms and have many different potential outcomes. So my general approach when it comes to eating for satiety is I think in most cases, we are asking the wrong questions. Um, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear people uh, kind of pitting one macronutrient against the other and saying, should I have more carbs or more fat? I'm trying to increase satiety. I think we, we focus too much on macronutrient composition and we're missing really important things we can do to increase uh, the satiety we experience during and following a meal. So rather than focusing on macronutrients exclusively, uh, this is a topic I've been writing about a lot in mass over the last couple years. And I've kind of put together a list of strategies that I give my clients when they're struggling with hunger and satiety. So, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll tell people try to eat more slowly. Um, there's really fascinating research on that where there are different strategies to induce slower eating. Uh, you know, so you could opt for uh, foods that just have harder texture. Um, you, you simply have to chew more and it can slow down your eating rate. Um, I, I saw one really creative study where uh, we were talking about this before recording today, but, uh, you know, obviously th there's a lot of research showing that if you eat an apple, versus uh, drinking an isocaloric amount of apple juice, uh, it's probably not surprising that apple, you know, uh, produces greater satiety than, than an equivalent amount of apple juice. But what was really interesting was there was a study where they had people eating apple juice as if it was a soup. So just like spooning it. Uh, and just the fact that using the spoon and going spoonful by spoonful and slowing down a little bit that actually restored a pretty substantial amount of the satiety that you would observe with just eating an apple. Mm -hmm. um, so slowing your meals down in whatever form that takes can be really helpful. And there's there's a few theories about why that might be. So some people, you, you'll most commonly hear people talk about just the 
the time course of releasing satiety-inducing hormones over the course of a meal. That could be contributing. You're just giving those satiety hormones an opportunity to, uh, you know, become released and do their thing after the initiation of a meal. Um, there, there's also been research looking at just the uh, the sensory experience of the meal. If you're eating more slowly, you are experiencing more of the flavor, more of the aroma of the meal per calorie because you're just extending that out and kind of savoring each bite. Rather, why are you smiling? Because uh, because I don't taste. No, th- I I was smiling because that's incredibly true. Yeah. Um, I I am a notoriously fast eater. Uh. Also someone who has notoriously had issues with body weight. Who knows? Those two things might be related. But I'm also very into cooking, and I, I like making good things. And when I when I make a new dish, here here is my eating process. The first bite I take, I, I will chew on it and try to experience the full depth of flavor, like just to make sure I did a good job. And from the time that bite goes into my, my mouth to when I swallow the first bite, is probably like 30 to 45 seconds. The amount of time it takes to eat the rest of the serving is probably an additional 30 to 45 seconds. Yeah. But so like, I know that if I want to, if I make something really good and I want to fully experience and enjoy it, or just check my work, make sure it's good, that I should eat slowly. Um, Cause like, that's what I do when I'm actually assessing, is this as good as I think it is? But the entire rest of the meal, I'm like, nah, fuck it. Like we're we're speed running dinner. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know it, that that uh, sensory experience of the meal could be a contributing mechanism for how slower eating does seem to pretty consistently uh, reduce ad libitum calorie intake at a meal within laboratory conditions. Um, uh, th- there's also uh, so so I mentioned the sensory experience. Um, I mentioned the uh, the satiety hormones and the timeline there. The other thing people have been looking into is more of the kind of psychological or the more of the cognitive aspects of eating the meal. So they wonder if having more attention on the meal uh, allows you to kind of really solidify the memory of like, I spent some time and attention on eating this meal and in the hours that follow, you, you because you are more kind of mentally present and cognitively present as you were consuming that meal, perhaps there's a memory related mechanism that leads to less snacking and less overeating in subsequent hours after that meal. Uh, so there's been a lot of research into exactly what's going on with slow eating, but it seems like a, a pretty consistent positive benefit if you are trying to enhance satiety to a meal is just slowing down a little bit. Uh, other tips I, I usually give people, uh, aside from eating more slowly, would be avoiding really hyper palatable meals while you're dieting, structuring your meals with plenty of protein, plenty of fiber, plenty of water content. And when you do that, when you have high protein, high fiber, high water content, you're usually going to find that the energy density of the meal tends to be pretty low. Uh, and then in just including plenty of unprocessed or minimally processed foods, which again, if you're including a lot of unprocessed or minim- minimally processed foods, you're more likely to include plenty of foods with lower energy density and with harder texture. Um, and that's not a hard and fast rule. You can find exceptions to that. But if you are constructing a diet that has a lot of unprocessed food uh, or, or minimally processed um 
And what you're going to find is a lot of items in there with low energy density and harder texture. So you're going to be chewing more. It's going to be more bites per meal. It's going to slow down the rate of eating. So uh, there are a lot of things we can focus on if we're trying to increase satiety. Uh, Those are the ones that I focus on when it comes to just what you're putting on your plate. Uh, But one other thing I encourage people to consider is adopting more of an acceptance-based approach to hunger. So if you're... uh, embarking on a weight loss diet, uh, or you're trying to maintain a reduced body weight, you kind of know going into that, that hunger might be an issue. It might be something that you are going to experience and, uh, you know, have to work through. And so there's really two ways to approach that. Uh, if, if you want to kind of dichotomize it, one would be, I am waging war on hunger and I need to fight this every step of the way. Uh, It is a rejection of hunger. It is kind of classifying and internalizing hunger as being an objectively negative thing that you must fight against uh, and hopefully overcome and and kind of defeat. Uh, But if you adopt a more acceptance-based approach, it's just a shift in mindset. Uh, and, And there's some interesting research showing this to be a pretty effective strategy when it comes to experiencing hunger in the context of dieting. Uh, But the idea is that you are accepting hunger as part of the process. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be excited about it and enjoy hunger when it's happening, uh, but it's a completely different mindset where you're focused on uh, acknowledging that hunger, experiencing it, not forcing it to go away, not, you know, waging war on that hunger, but just kind of accepting that as part of the process and trying to reframe that. And if you dig into it and you take this acceptance-focused approach to hunger, Uh, you can find yourself almost looking for a bit of a silver lining there, right? So if you are dieting and you notice some hunger, the first thing you can recognize is, okay, this is present and I know that it's not permanent. You know, it's going to come and go when I eat and fast and, you know, periods between meals, it'll come and go. Uh, So it's not permanent. It's not going to be here forever. It's not something that necessarily requires immediate action, Uh, And it also could potentially be indicative of the fact that I'm generally on the right track here. You know, I'm in an energy deficit and hunger is one clue that here I am, you know, eating a lower calorie intake, which is compatible with my goal, whether it's weight loss or maintenance of a a reduced body weight. Uh, So I it's it's not that I'm saying, you know, the initial question was about, you know, fat and satiety. It's not that I'm saying you know, there's nothing we can do about satiety because I I think there are a lot of things when it comes to satiety and hunger that we can focus on, which can be quite helpful, whether it comes to how we construct a meal or how we view hunger and satiety in general. Um, But a lot of times the question does end up being fat versus carbs go, or is protein actually satiating? And I think uh, those are, I understand where the questions come from, but I think if we dig deeper, We can ask more nuanced questions, and when we do that, we get answers that are very practical, very actionable, and a lot more helpful than just focusing on macronutrient breakdown. Yeah, that that all makes a lot of sense to me. I I had three things to add, and I hope I remember all of them. Uh, But the first one is regarding uh, acceptance-based approaches to hunger. It occurred. This occurred to me uh, the other day, maybe like two or three days ago, um, chatting with someone in either the Macro Factor Stronger by Science Facebook group. I, I can't remember which one, but it, it was one of the two. Um, and it, it occurred to me uh, talking about this that I think a lot of us 
just implicitly adopt an acceptance-based approach to unpleasant sensations during exercise. Um, and, and like maybe we didn't even have to consciously do it. Like maybe a lot of people who stick with exercise were people who were just like innately wired this way. But like a lot of the the sensations that you experience with resistance training, if you if you zoomed out, like you would probably classify them as objectively unpleasant. Like the the burning sensation in your muscles near the end of a set, um, the the DOMS you feel after a hard workout, maybe like joint creakiness you get. Um, if you decontextualize that from lifting, and you know you're just chilling, going about your day. And then your body suddenly started feeling the way it does after a really hard workout. You wouldn't say, hell yeah, I fucking love this. You would say, I'm dying. There's yeah. something horribly wrong with me. Like those those are decoupled from resistance training, unpleasant sensations. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think we tend to grow to like them um, because we do view them as at least to some degree like proxies for I've, I've worked hard enough to present an adequate stimulate stimulus for adaptation uh the doms like uh you know what i know as a science person doms isn't a particularly uh valid predictor of hypertrophic responses but still in my lizard brain i think it is you know if nothing else it tells me like yeah i worked pretty hard yesterday um so you know you do come to Either like you just enjoy that from the jump because you have a slight masochistic streak or you come to enjoy and appreciate or at least like fully tolerate those things over time. Um, and, and I think that uh, I, I don't see why hunger can't be a very similar thing. Like it, it is an unpleasant experience. Uh, but like you said, it, it is if you're trying to lose weight, it is also an indicator that you're probably on the right track. Um, so I, I think that that little... That little shift in thinking, like in, in comparing it to the sensations you feel from exercise, uh, might be helpful. Uh, and, and if I could add one little bit of additional clarification there, uh, you might hear this conversation and say, oh, cool. So I should seek to be very, very hungry during a diet. That's not the implication here. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, I, and I've even heard of people who kind of use almost like an intuitive eating slash auto-regulation approach to dieting. I, I think I heard uh, uh, Gabrielle, Gabrielle Fundero talking about this, uh, Dr. Fundero, um, but kind of auto-regulating your hunger to like a particular level out of 10 during a diet if you don't want to do tracking, you know, as a way, you know, to kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm restricting enough to induce mild hunger. And if it gets too extreme, then maybe I need to adjust some things. And if I'm experiencing no hunger and weight's not moving, then that tells me something. Uh, so it's it's not that we're seeking out hunger for its own sake. It's just that if we are doing the things that are compatible with our weight reduction goal, we're probably going to run into it. And mm -hmm. we shouldn't necessarily uh, consider that to be a negative thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, th that was the first thing I wanted to say, just that that analogy with exercise might be helpful for some people. Uh, second thing I wanted to say is one of the first things you mentioned was that the satiety response that people get from various macronutrients um, might might vary considerably between individuals. I absolutely think that's correct uh, because, like, I, I've seen 
so many times over the years, people saying like, oh, fat is highly satiating. Uh, people saying like, I went on keto and it changed my life. Like it completely blunted my appetite. When you look at the research on keto, there there seems to be some suggestions of that, that it uh, on average blunts hunger. That was not my experience. Like we, we've talked about this before. I did keto back in the day. Um, I mean, I when, when I... Uh, like, I, I still felt like I had to restrict to some degree when I was doing keto. And, like, even now, like, if I am going to overeat, it's always on high-fat stuff. Um, and it is, like, generally highly palatable high-fat stuff. And, like, I I just don't get that satiety response that people say you're supposed to get. Um, like, I, I could go into a steakhouse, just look at the biggest steak on the menu. If they've got something that's, like, 24, 30 ounces... Uh, I don't order it, but in my younger days, I used to. Um, and yeah, like two hours later, I'd be like, ah, yeah, I'm ready to eat again. Um, so I don't, for me personally, the, the uh, I, I guess, fact that fat tends to be satiating for people uh, didn't resonate with me personally. Um, and yeah, like I, I think the, the key there is, you know, we're dealing with averages. There is a lot of variation between individuals. And it's not, it's not incompatible to say fat on average seems to be fairly satiating and fat is not particularly satiating for me as an individual. Both of those things can be true. Uh, and that's something worth keeping in mind. And then if I could add one thing to that, it's interesting because uh, even among just the two of us here, we have that variability present because... Mm -hmm. I did a ketogenic diet for an extended period of time. It was probably six, seven, eight months, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I found it to be remarkably satiating. Mm -hmm. I, I, I did have spontaneous weight loss without conscious restriction uh, just because the, the high fat, you know, decent amount of protein. But to me, what was interesting about it was it was high fat without a lot of the really palatable fat sources that would typically induce me to overeat because mm -hmm. uh, usually those would have enough carbohydrate that I couldn't really work them in. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, like it, I could eat the same amount of fat as when I was on a ketogenic diet, but if it was coming from sources that weren't, uh, you know, restrictive in terms of carb source, uh, I probably would not have had the same experience. Like I, I can't just increase my fat and watch my weight drop. Mm -hmm. It has to be fat with carb restriction because now I'm not getting those really hyper palatable fat sources for me. Dude, I, I was not eating hyper palatable stuff. Uh, I was I was in college at the time. I was dirt poor. Yeah. And so most of my calories were either coming from like skin on chicken thighs that I added extra fat to or from the the 7327 ground beef yeah. that at the time uh you could get a 10 pound sleeve of from yeah. Walmart for a buck 50 a pound yeah. incredible um but yeah like you would you would basically have to make like really thin patties and sear it really quick just because like dude 7327 that's so much fat yeah. and so if you made like large ish burger patties and cooked them well done all the way through just like one four ounce patty would just be swimming in a pool of of beef fat by the end it was by the end of the time it was done cooking so like you had you had to cook things in particular ways to make sure that like it held on to enough fat so like 
dude, that was the basis of, of my, my keto phase. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't particularly good, but I still didn't spontaneously lose weight. Yeah. Um, let's see. And then the last thing I wanted to say, um, not really adding anything, but just, just reiterating, um, I do think that especially among like kind of sciencey people, there is a, um, an impulse to maybe be overly reductive, uh, because like that seems to comport well with scientific thinking where, you know, the, the more things you can control for the, the better you can, you know, make sure that the effect you're picking up is the actual effect you're trying to measure. And it's not being influenced by outside things. And the better you can get at the underlying mechanisms behind what you end up wanting to study. But also with translational research, you know, you're, you're going from just kind of basic science, food science stuff to, okay, now what are you actually recommending people to eat? Um, if it, if what you're studying gets so abstracted from what people actually consume in the real world, the research can begin to lose some of its translational value and end up becoming too reductive. Um, because like ultimately people aren't eating protein, carbs, fat. People are eating food and those nutrients are coming in the context of food. And so like if you find, you know, that when you isolate fat and carbohydrate, if like one or the other is more satiating, but then you actually get into the real world and, you know, maybe just like, uh, powdered maltodextrin has one effect on satiety, but when you, like you mentioned, water content and fiber content, when you put that carbohydrate in the context of fruit that you're consuming or like whole grain bread or something like that, you know, maybe the carbohydrate content is matched, but the satiety response you get from it could be very different because it's not just the carbohydrates you're eating. It's everything else in all of the foods you're consuming that you're eating as well. And, and all of those things can have an impact. So I, I think that it is easy to not necessarily forget that, but attempt to overlook that uh, in, in the hopes of being kind of more objective and sciencey. But when you take that too far, you can just end up... Um, you know, basing your recommendations for the real world on research that is so far abstracted from the real world that it uh, that it loses some of its translational value. Yeah, and, and that reminds me of uh, an article I did for Mass years ago at this point. But the the question was: Is protein satiating? Mm-hmm. What was kind of the focus of the article? And I, I mentioned in the article, like it it was kind of like a meta analysis, I think, and results were kind of inconsistent and it was one of those situations where the answer was not or or the question wasn't why are there inconsistencies but like how could there not be inconsistencies Mm -hmm. because like a protein intervention within that context could be uh, a a whey protein shake it could be a yogurt product it could be a bar it could be a piece of meat Uh, and they have such different characteristics as food items that to think that they all represent uh, the same generalizable satiety response would be really difficult to justify if you zoom out a little bit. And so we, we like to reduce it to very simple questions and very simple answers with very simple elements. Uh, but sometimes that's you know not the best way to do it, yeah. like you mentioned. 
Um, all right, so we are running extremely long with this episode. We're, we're at about 50 minutes already. Um, I do want to answer really a really quick question about supplementation. If you want to pick out one that you can answer relatively concisely, uh, I think that would wrap up the show. So I'll start, uh, and you can kind of dig through your list of questions and see if there's one that jumps out to you. Um, I got a question from Reed. And Reed uh, basically said they'd, they'd be interested in a discussion between me and Barbell Medicine regarding supplementation. Um, according to Reed, Barbell Medicine has been fairly outspoken against uh, most supplementation in uh, parentheses. It says fish oil, multivitamins, vitamin D, etc. The only exceptions that come to mind are creatine, beta alanine, citrulline mal- malate, uh, essential amino acids, and beetroot. So, I'm, I haven't like fact checked that. I'm going to accept that that is a, uh, an accurate representation of their position. Uh, I like the guys, I like the team at Barbell Medicine. Uh, I like the content they put out. I think they've done a lot of good when it comes to, uh, breaking people of, uh, a lot of the fear mongering regarding exercise and movement and pain. Um, I, I really like what they do and I think they do really nice work over there, um, if this is a, a you know, I, I don't consume much content in the fitness space, so I, I didn't like dig in and, and do a lot of fact checking, but I'll just kind of answer this vaguely. Like, what uh, what do you think about people who say that, you know, multivitamins, vitamin D and fish oil are unnecessary, overrated, etc.? So I think if I were to sit down with someone who advises against supplementation with those three categories, fish oil, multivitamin, vitamin D, uh, we would probably agree on the best case scenarios. Uh, So the best case scenarios would be either you get all the nutrition you need from food, you've got a well-balanced diet with a variety of different food sources that is a totally complete diet that covers all your needs. That's obviously best case scenario, no, no multivitamin needed, and you're good to go. Uh, the next best scenario would be that if you have any concerns related to insufficient nutrient intake or insufficient nutrient status, you would uh, visit a qualified healthcare professionals and, and they would order the appropriate testing. They would identify any deficiencies or insufficiencies, and then they would prescribe a targeted supplementation program that is followed up with serial blood testing to make sure that uh, the inadequacy or insufficiency is rectified. Um, Now, that's, you know, best case scenario, but I think practically speaking, sometimes we diverge from that, right? So in, in the real world, sometimes you run into situations where there's an individual who is not diligently tracking their micronutrient intake. They must not use macro factor because we've got all the micronutrient coverage that you need. But, you know, they're not paying attention very closely to their mac or to their micronutrient intake. They're not paying attention to, okay, the vitamin C that I'm taking in, am I cooking it in a way that it's leaching out and I'm not actually consuming it? You know, there's issues of uh, cooking method, preparation method, um, anti-nutrients aren't scary, but they do exist. You know, sometimes you do have to consider combinations of nutrients consumed at the same meal. So some people just don't want to deal with looking into all that. Um, and, and so for people like that, it's really difficult to say, well, okay, 
go and see a, a physician, uh, fight your way through the U.S. healthcare system, get that testing done, do serial visits back to get more checking done. Uh, that's great if you're willing to do it. I haven't been to a doctor in like 10 years. That's not a recommendation. But I think for a lot of people, they look at it and they say, okay, I'm not really... 10 years was an exaggeration now that I think about it, but I try to interact with the medical system as infrequently as possible. Um, in, in America, that's just the way it goes, I think. But uh, well, you're playing Russian roulette. Like either, you're, uh, like either your insurance company is going to come through surprisingly well and, you know, you wind up with like a $200 bill or, you know, you, you go in for a checkup, you get referred out for like one visit with a specialist and boom, you're bankrupted. Right. And who knows? You, you, it, it's going to go one of those two routes. Generally, it's going the first route, but the chance of it going the second route is a little bit higher than I find acceptable. Yeah. And, and just to like, <laughs> this is a real story. I, I, the last time I went to the doctor, I needed some imaging done. And I, I talked to the first person who like referred me to the next person and the next person every step of the way between my initial visit and the person doing the actual imaging, like every single step of the way, I said, can you tell me how much this will cost? And the, of course they said, absolutely not. And I said, no, I just need to know how many zeros are, are we talking about a hundred dollars or are we talking about 10,000? And they said, honestly, I have no idea. And that was all the way until you've already done it and there's no going back. And they'll say, someone will tell you in two months whether this was $100 or $10,000. Uh, good luck. Yeah. So anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. But so there's a lot of people who are like, listen, I don't want to go through all the effort to look at all these different micronutrients. Uh, I don't want to go through the effort of going to a doctor like six times to, to get any insufficiencies corrected. And it's not that I am concerned about overt like serious nutrient deficiencies like i don't think i have scurvy at the moment uh but i do wonder if maybe my diet is a little bit insufficient to the extent that maybe i'm experiencing more fatigue than i ought to maybe i'm not feeling my best maybe i'm not performing my best and like i'm not into the whole biohacking idea where you just convince everybody that they're like a shell of what they could be and they need to like go through some complicated sequence of supplementation trials to figure out how to feel good. Uh, but I, I do suspect that there is some area in the middle there where it's like there, there's the intake required to like not have an extremely deleterious nutrient deficiency. And then there's optimal and there's somewhere in between. Like, like I don't think the sole purpose of micronutrient intake is just to not have severely grave deficiencies with clinically obvious consequences. So if you're someone who's like, listen, I want to make sure I've got my bases covered. I want to be in line with adequate intakes. I think I might be a little bit low on some of these, but I don't want to go through the process of visiting a doctor six times. I don't think it's that crazy to say, you know what? Maybe you do take a multivitamin. And maybe if you live you know, depending on the latitude, depending on how often you get outside, depending on the, the season, you know, maybe you just are not getting any sun exposure. So yeah, maybe a low dose of vitamin D makes sense. Uh, you know, EPA and DHA, like a fish oil supplement, maybe you don't eat any fatty fish at all. 
And there's research suggesting that certain tissues, it makes sense to have some EPA and DHA in those cell membranes. Maybe you say, you know what, maybe I do want to get into some of those recommended levels of like averaging maybe 300, 500 milligrams per day of combined EPA and DHA. So not like the super high levels, you, see, you know, some supplement trials, they'll do like six grams a day of fish oil. Maybe we're talking about one gram a day of fish oil. Uh, I, I think they're... I think it's pretty justifiable to to say maybe in some of those situations it makes sense to say instead of going through the really tedious process maybe I'll take a multivitamin maybe I'll try some fish oil supplementation um and I know a lot of times when you mention this people push back and say well I mean I live in the United States you know it's an affluent country there is uh you know the the food supply is generally abundant compared to other countries no one in America has nutrient deficiencies. Like I've heard people make that claim and that's just fully incompatible with all the evidence. Yeah, there, there's a difference between no one has nutrient deficiencies and no one is dying of beriberi anymore. Yeah, so I, I think that people like I... I, I or, or, or at least insufficiencies. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I see people say that all the time where they're like, oh, dude, like you go to the grocery store for your food. You don't, you're not experiencing food insecurity. There's no way that you have inadequate intake of a micronutrient. And like, that's just not true. Brother, like, I don't eat vegetables. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, if you look at some of the research, you'll see like estimates that 31% of the U.S. population is at risk of having at least one vitamin deficiency or anemia. Uh, you, you'll see, um, you know, studies where they'll look at, um, you know, there, there's one study where they compared people who take multivitamins to people who don't, and taking a multivitamin was associated with a lower prevalence of inadequacy for 15 out of the 17 micronutrients that were examined. Like, if you look at the research, there is evidence that there are people uh, in affluent countries who are not meeting adequate intakes for micronutrients. And they are not experienced, like, it, it's not like there's, you know, you know, there is the possibility that you have inadequate nutrient intakes without having scurvy, without having rickets, you know, like, it doesn't always take this, like, catastrophic medical condition to, uh, to tell you, hey, by the way, you're a little bit low on your vitamin C or your vitamin D. Uh, there are a lot of people in the United States, purely based on the data, who are experiencing subclinical uh, insufficiencies related to either uh, circulating levels of micronutrients or actual intakes of nutrients. Uh, and, and those can very easily be rectified with, uh, with supplementation strategies that are very cost-effective, have an extremely good safety profile, and do have the potential for some benefit. Uh, another thing I often see when people push back against this is they'll be like, dude, vitamins are useless. And they'll send me a study and it'll be like a big randomized controlled trial. And they'll say like people with uh, people taking multivitamins didn't live longer. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't think you were going to die yeah. from, from not taking a multivitamin. It, it's a matter of like, are you hitting these, these benchmarks for adequate intake? And if not, might you have a better subjective experience day to day and be in a generally healthier place 
if you were hitting those benchmarks for adequate intake. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that as well with uh, with vitamin D. Like a, a, f- a couple people have hit me up on Instagram uh, saying like, hey, Eric has talked about uh, vitamin D supplementation on the podcast before. Uh, new study just came out. Turns out that supplementing with vitamin D doesn't improve strength and hypertrophy outcomes. I'm like, that's really cool. But did you know that vitamin D interacts with more things in your body than your musculoskeletal system that uh may be relevant yeah so um so yeah that that's really just the 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 root of any disagreement like uh you know sometimes and it's important to recognize like if you say i don't think i need a multivitamin i don't think i need vitamin d i don't think i need fish oil like it's very unlikely that you're going to experience uh, a clinically relevant negative consequence of not taking any of these supplements. Like, I don't consider them to be essential, um, but for people who are not being mindful of their intakes of these nutrients and are not getting sun exposure, I do recommend, uh, in many cases, very conservative supplementation uh, approaches, which might be as simple as a multivitamin and just enough fish oil to get you close to what what experts say is an advisable intake of fish oil. So I don't think you're going to really make or break your health or your uh, performance or your training adaptations by using uh, any of these categories of supplements. But I do view them as supplements that, uh, aside from some very specific instances, generally have terrific safety profiles and generally are quite affordable. Uh, like my multivitamin is four cents a day. Uh, vitamin D is way cheaper than that. So like we're, we're talking about making in some cases like a six cent per day investment. Um, and yeah, it, it, an investment that, like I said, uh, barring a few very specific instances, uh, you know, the, the safety profile looks, looks terrific. Like I, I have seen some instances where People have issues with vitamin D just because the supplement was formulated poorly and it was giving them like a hundred times the dose than was on the label. Obviously, that's not a good thing. Uh, fish oil uh, can can have some impacts on the way that your blood clots. Um, and so in certain medical situations, that can be unfavorable. But again, you know that that I don't think that's grounds for saying that generally all fish oil should be avoided. Um, and then... Uh, there have been some studies indicating that certain vitamins might be bad when it comes to cancer outcomes, specifically for smokers. Um, my understanding is that those findings are a bit inconsistent. They're kind of hit or miss. Uh, and there's there's also not, uh, I don't think they've identified a clear mechanism describing why that would be. And of course, in that scenario, the driver, you know, the the carcinogenic agent there that is driving that relationship is smoking status. Yeah. Just, just to flip a recommendation we gave on the last podcast, uh, this time around the stronger by science podcast is coming out against smoking. Yeah. So like, I, I don't think it makes sense to construct broad supplementation guidelines based on the assumption that everyone hearing it is a smoker, you know? So like, yeah, uh, if if I were a smoker and I were thinking about vitamin supplementation, you know, I'd talk to my doctor, figure it out. Um, but but general recommendation, I, I think, um, you know, that that's kind of a special population, uh, yeah. personally. So that that's my view on supplementing with those types of things. And uh, I like I said, I, I don't think it's the type of thing that's gonna, you know, 
I don't expect people to call me up in 30 years and say, ah, man, I, I ignored your your advice and boy, do I regret it. Like, I, I don't think it's a night or day difference for your performance, your recovery, your health. Um, but I don't see tremendous downsides to just covering your bases and getting those adequate intakes. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, the, the one thing I'll add just to emphasize something you said is, um, you know, there there have been formulation issues with various supplement, not just vitamin and mineral supplements, but just supplements across the board. Um, and, and so if someone did want to opt for the very conservative recommendation of saying like, nah, don't take vitamin D, don't take multivitamins um, on the basis that you know, if you, if you're not going to assume that everyone's going to do their research and make sure what they're taking is, is good and well formulated, then, you know, maybe the benefits are unlikely to be particularly large. And there, there is at least some non-trivial risk of really negative outcomes. If someone ends up taking a supplement, that's just a really shitty supplement. Um, like I, I think that that's an entirely fair and defensible position. Um, but I mean, I think if you want to be really conservative about it, uh, there are sites like lab door and, and there's another one, I forget what it is, but th- there are sites that do maybe consumer lab. Yeah. Yeah. Consumer lab. I think, um, that do third party testing of various supplements for purity and safety. Um, so yeah, if you want to minimize your risk of, you know, having some, something catastrophically bad happening because what was supposed to be in the supplement wasn't in the supplement or things that <clears throat> things that weren't supposed to be in the supplement were in the supplement. Um, you know, look, look at, look at third party testing sites, like make sure what you're taking is good. Um, and I, I personally think that that should go a long way towards, towards mitigating risk. Yeah. And you know, I don't argue every nutrition topic with the same level of like insistence where it's like, no, I need everyone to take my side on this. Like, I know a lot of people are going to listen to this uh, and say, I don't think I need these supplements. Like I eat a pretty good diet and it's important to reiterate. I think that's terrific. Like if you don't, the the best case scenario is that you don't need to take a multivitamin, vitamin D or fish oil. You've already got your bases covered with your diet. You try it. It doesn't do anything. You stop using it because you didn't need it in the first place. Dude, I, that doesn't make me lose sleep. I, I think that's best case scenario. Nice. Uh, all right. Did you have one you wanted to do? Yeah, it's not on the outline, but this is a... So I want to respond to a pers- perspective and concern that I've seen uh, three or four times within the past week that is, I think, based on a very understandable bit of confusion. Um, and that is the the efficacy of BIA scales for tracking changes in body composition over time. And so this is a slightly different conversation than the accuracy of BIA scales for assessing body composition in the first place. So, um, you know, if you've been uh, hanging around the evidence-based fitness space for a while, I'm sure you've encountered the perspective backed by an enormous amount of evidence that uh, BIA scales are not particularly accurate when it comes to assessing body composition. Those are the scales that have the the little like metal 
are they electrodes? I guess they are. They're passing a electrical current through you. Yeah, the, the ones with like the little elect the little metal electrodes on them, uh, where you stand on them barefoot, and they tell you not just your weight, but an estimate of your body fat percentage. Um, they don't work well. They, they don't. Uh, <laughs> they don't tell you uh, particularly accurately what your body composition is. And that's largely just based on limitations of the technology. Like if if you're only running BIA currents through your feet, um, really it's it's roughly assessing or estimating water content of your legs and then using that to kind of extrapolate body composition of your legs. And then based on uh, how much you weigh and also your sex, they then use that to extrapolate to the composition of the rest of your body. You'll notice I just said extrapolate three times. There are a lot of assumptions baked into that. Um, and, you know, it's the the potential for error is very large. So, you know, I think most people are, are aware of that who are listening to this podcast. But th- you can go a level deeper uh, and say, well, you know, there's a difference between validity and, re- and reliability. Um, so if something is valid... It's it's going to accurately ref- reflect reality. So if you're twenty percent body fat, maybe it will tell you that you're eh, somewhere between eighteen and twenty two percent body fat. Like it gets you pretty close. That's validity. And then reliability is basically how repeatable a measurement is. So something can be invalid but also highly reliable, which in many cases is just as good. So if you know, if BIA is consistently telling you that your body fat percentage is 8% higher than it actually is, you're 15%, but it says you're 23%. But every time you step on the scale when you're 15%, it says you're 23%. Uh, that is an invalid measurement. It's not telling you your actual body composition, but it is a reliable measurement. And oftentimes, reliable measurements, even if they're invalid, are just as useful because the thinking goes, they can help you track changes over time. So if your BIA scale goes from saying you're 23% body fat to 20% body fat, you know you're not 20% body fat, but you know that there's that 8% built-in error, so it means you're actually 12% body fat. And so if something is, is reliable but not valid, it can still be very useful. But where I think the disconnect is, is that for, for just test-retest reliability, BIA scales are pretty reliable. So if you step on your scale, uh, you know, tomorrow morning, and then you step off, uh, you don't eat or drink anything, you don't use the bathroom again, you step on the BIA scale again five minutes later, it will probably tell you that your body fat percentage is very, very similar to what it, you, it told you it was five minutes prior. Um, so, you know, that's that's a high degree of same-day reliability. And so uh, people look at that and they're like, oh, so this is a reliable measure. I don't want to put too much stock in what the actual number says, but that means I can use it to track changes over time. And that's where the disconnect is. And, and the biggest thing I want to point out is there's a difference between same-day reliability and reliability of tracking over time. So if you can establish... That for you today, there's, say, a 5% difference between what your BIA scale says and what a DEXA scan says. You can't necessarily assume that that relationship is going to persist on an ongoing basis. Because ultimately, 
the scale is still using BIA. And so the, um, the limitations and assumptions of BIA are still built in to the numbers it's giving you. So for example, um, it's not uncommon to be using a BIA scale to be in a calorie deficit, to lose some weight. And, you know, maybe it's the start of a diet. You've lost five pounds, six pounds, something like that. And your BIA scale say, says, oh, hey, like you've only lost six pounds, but guess what? Four of those were muscle. And then you say, oh, shit, that's bad. I've barely lost any weight. I'm, al I'm already just shedding lean mass, not losing much fat at all. This is going catastrophically bad. And that's based on the assumption that the same day reliability of BIA extrapolates to uh, like reliably tracking changes over time. But the reason it's probably not going to do that is because of basically the way BIA works. So um, like muscle uh, and, and lean tissue in general tends to be better hydrated than fat tissue is. Like it has more water content. Uh, and so it, it's basically trying to pick up on water content and, and use that to extrapolate body composition. And so let's say you start a diet, you go into a caloric deficit that's probably going to come with a reduction in carbohydrate intake, uh, you know, and you lose a little muscle glycogen. That decreases the, the hydration of muscle tissue. BIA is going to pick up on that as a loss in lean mass and a smaller reduction in fat mass than actually happened. Uh, and so, yeah, it's going to say you lost a lot of muscle. You didn't actually lose a lot of muscle. You just lost some of the water content in your muscles, but BIA has no way of knowing that. Uh, and also, since a BIA scale is just passing that electrical, electrical current through your legs, it can't know what's happening in your upper body. So, you know, maybe based on what it can see, the body composition of your legs looks about the same. Um, but maybe you're losing a ton of abdominal fat or visceral fat or fat off of your upper body. There's literally no way for your BIA scale to know that that's happening. And it's just going to look and say like, well, you know, I'm, I'm seeing about the same resistance to this electrical current in the legs. So eh, it doesn't seem like body comp is changing all that much. You know, maybe similar amounts of muscle and fat is being lost. That's not the case. Uh, but the the technology itself has no way of picking up on that. Um, so yeah, like it, BIA scales might be might give you repeatable measurements on the same day, but due to the limitations of the technology, it is probably not going to reliably tra track changes in body comp over time or tell you particularly reliably how much fat versus muscle you're losing. Uh, in a deficit or how much fat versus muscle you're gaining in a surplus same day reliability and reliably tracking changes over time similar concepts different things bia scales are pretty good at the former not so much at the latter so um yeah if if every indication is that your diet is going well you know your your performance in the gym seems to be keeping up you don't visibly look in the mirror like you're shedding a ton of muscle but your scale says Oh man, you're down six pounds, but you've already lost five pounds of muscle. Just ignore it. it. It it is giving you a very rough estimation of changes. It is not measuring changes, and that's a that's a very important distinction. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that uh, 
body fat percentage estimates from BIA scales are are less than worthless. Because um, if they end up being correct, it's pretty much by chance. And if they end up tracking changes in body composition uh, reliably and correctly, that's also more or less by chance. Um, <laughs> like they're, So I, I don't think they give you reliable enough correct information to actually be useful, but there's a very high chance that they're going to give you information that will mislead you about what's actually going on. So, you know, you, you don't get anything beneficial from it. It might fuck with your head. Uh, I personally think you should just ignore it. And if you have a smart scale that is supposed to uh, assess your body fat percentage, you generally have to stay stepping on it a little bit longer before it will actually take that measurement. Just wait until the weight number comes up, record that, step the fuck off the scale. You, like, don't don't even look at the body fat percentage number. It is not telling you anything valuable. Yeah, and it is important to recognize, like, uh, bioimpedance technology is not a single thing. Um, so, like, th there are people working hard at the companies that develop these technologies to try to get around some of the challenges. Like, one thing that you'll see in a lot of research these days is segmental bioimpedance bio spectroscopy. So they're using a spectrum of different uh, frequencies and they're looking segment by segment. So they'll yep. look at the leg, they'll look at the arm. Uh, but I mean, that is purely for research purposes. When it comes to the uh, kind of direct to consumer, uh, you know, kind of commercial grade uh, bathroom scales, they're, they're not implementing any of those advanced technologies. And no. like you said, it's, well, uh, and, and they can't. Right, right. Yeah. And so with with if I'm working with a client and they're like, well, my bathroom scale, I'll be like, well, let's, I won't cut them off. I'll let them finish. But I'll say like, let's talk about a future in which you no longer look at that number. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And it, I'll even say that when it, sometimes they'll be like, oh my God, Eric, you're, you're a genius. How do you do it? I've gained six pounds of muscle. I'll be like, nice, but let's also just not, <laughs> let's not use that. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, all right, so that uh, does it for the content in today's episode. But to play us out, uh, we've got Eric's stat of the day, and this is NBA edition. I know Gosh. you're a big fan of NBA basketball. So uh, LeBron James uh, set a milestone recently in an otherwise unremarkable career. He became the <laughs> oldest person to average at least 30 points per game over a season in the NBA. So... In in honor of this uh, milestone, I wanted to quiz you and ask you, so LeBron is the oldest person to do this. Do you know who the youngest person to do this is? I think I do. So I, who is I think it? it's LeBron. It is also LeBron James. Yeah. Uh, and so my favorite thing in sports now is just marveling at longevity outliers. Like I want to watch Tom Brady throw a touchdown when he's 56 years old. Uh, and to see LeBron James simultaneously being the youngest and oldest player to ever average 30 points in a season, it just doesn't make sense. I watch these two guys and I keep saying, there's no way they can keep getting away with it. Like this will be the year where they start falling apart. And they're just, they're just incredible. That is true. Um, so LeBron also had another age related milestone uh, recently in that he became the youngest player to score 37,000 points in a career. 
Wow. So that's a lot of points. S- still, still a spring chicken in some respects. Yeah. All right. So I think you have a movie recommendation. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, so two nights ago, uh, my wife and I went and saw the new film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Um, it would be challenging to describe the movie in a way that makes sense and makes it sound good. Um, it's it's very trippy, very action-packed, and also very sentimental and touching all at once. It, it plays with genre really well, goes from being... Uh, taking itself very seriously to being completely absurd in a way that doesn't feel completely disjointed. And it is, I, I think it's one of the best movies I've seen in a long, long time. So if you, you know, if you just want to uh, take yourself on a date, uh, have have a fun movie day, or if you want to take your significant other on a date, you want to go to the movie with the boys, want to go to the movie with the girls. I can't think of a of a... Uh, situation or cohort of people that this would be an inappropriate film for, except maybe very young children. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a great film that I think uh, just about anyone would enjoy, and you should check it out. Awesome. I'm excited for our show to get more into film criticism, because I know it's something that's really important to both of us. So uh, I'm going to start watching some movies and reviewing them on the show moving forward. Um, all right. So that does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. As always, thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you again very soon. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.